Alrighty. Um, there is a lot of stuff in my notes we didn't cover. So if you got questions, we can go there. If not, I got some places we can go to. So there will not be a long countdown. Questions? Oh, mics. You need mics. Okay. Any questions? Oh, we got questions. So Wanda and um, Brain Scott, can I get another volunteer to hand around a mic? We need, we kind of need two people. You got it, Jeremy? All right. Oh, Jeremy's. Oh, okay. Okay. Wanda. Okay. Um, you, I think it was Luke twelve forty seven that you said that the different managers, the rebellious and the disobedient, that that led you to believe that it, there was degrees in hell. Yes. I kind of wanted you to expound on that. And then you, where it talks about um, to much was given, much will be required. Are, is that still dealing with in hell or not? Um, okay, great questions. Let me, uh, let me get away from my chair here and sit down. Um, first, the issue of, of degrees of judgment in hell. If you, if you turn back to Luke um, chapter 10, In Luke 10, Jesus is speaking about the towns that did not repent, that he did his miracles in. And in Luke chapter 10, let me find it here. I'm on the wrong page. Um, verse th let's pick it up in verse 13. Um, woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Why? What's their woe? It's the opposite of blessed. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. But it will be sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So here's a picture of cities that did not repent. Tyre and Sidon, we're going through a men's group. They got a couple chapters in Ezekiel about how God's going to whoop up on them. They don't ever um, repent. And yet, even though they're condemned, because they are, they never had the Lord present doing miracles, their judgment will not be as great and their hell will not be as bad as the judgment of those towns where Jesus did his miracles. So just as there is degrees of reward in heaven, there will be degrees of punishment in hell. Uh, I don't know how to make it. I don't. I don't know exactly how that's going to play out and work. I don't know exactly what that is. Um, it might be simply God increasing some people's capacity for suffering. I don't know. I don't think hell is going to be easy for anyone. I don't think hell is going to be. Some people, it's going to be just kind of unpleasant. But um, it, 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 we get this idea that there will be greater degrees of judgment and greater degrees of condemnation for some than for others. Anyone, just on that note, anyone want to add any thoughts to that or, or any questions to that? I, I certainly don't exactly know how this works. Um, so, okay. Your second question again, if you could refresh, I went off on this one, I've already forgotten what it was, Wanda, I'm sorry. That's my brain, I forget all. <laughs> um. You're on Yeah. 
I do believe so, yes. That was one of the big questions I wrestled with. And, the, and to be sure, there is a category. Keep, keep your finger here and go to 1 Corinthians 3. There is a category where someone just sort of sneaking into heaven. Um, I just don't think that's what he's talking about here. So there is such a category. And we get it. And so part of what I was wrestling with this week is, is he talking about the people in 1 Corinthians 3? Or is he not? Um, let me show you the people in 1 Corinthians 3, and then I'll tell you why I don't think it is. Um, so let's pick it up in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 3. For one's, each one's work will become manifest for the day, day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, the foundation is of God's church, his temple. So he's actually talking about church leaders and ministers, people who are um, elders, pastors, deacons. These are people leading and building Christ's church. And each person in this capacity will be judged according to their labor. And some build on this foundation with... with um, Costly stones and silver and gold and others with hay and straw. That's the, uh, that's the picture. In fact, jump back earlier. It becomes clear. Verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest so the day will disclose it. So you had a pile of stuff and some of it's straw and some of it's hay and some of it's gold. The real fast way to separate it is to just start a fire because the hay and the straw burns up and the gold and the diamonds don't, right? Okay, verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. So here's a workman who, now notice he's not destroying God's temple. In the very next verse, we look at that. The work he does is not lasting. The work he does, it doesn't value. It doesn't, it doesn't build up and strengthen the house. He's building with hay and straw. Because look at verse 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. So this is not someone who tears down. This is just a builder who's building terribly. I mean, this might be the equivalent of modern day pastors who tell, you know, a lot of self-help, you know, and, and motivational speaking. They, they believe in Jesus. They've got the gospel, but they're not really teaching the Bible. They're, you know, they're, what they're doing isn't really building stuff up. They're building with hay and straw. But if they're real believers and they have the real gospel and they haven't compromised that, they're going to, you know, when it comes time for their reward, they're going to get in by the seat of their pants singed. There's a category for that. And they're contrasted with those who tear down the temple who God destroys. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here, but I want to recognize there is such a category. Um, so back to Luke, the reasons why I think that in Luke 12 we're, we're dealing with that is a couple. One um, is if you can take this with the parable of the, of the soils, we have one good soil that bears fruit and three soils that do not. Now, that's not a terribly strong reason, but it does fit that context. Here's the, here's the biggest thing. We have blessings and we have beatings. And the New Testament is very clear that for people who are Christians, the return of the Lord is a blessed event. The return of the Lord is going to be a grace. Um, in 1 Peter 1.13, let's listen to 1 Peter 1.13. It's one of the texts we didn't go to. Um, is it not on here? There it is. Therefore, 
preparing your minds for action, literally girding up your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is revealed from heaven, grace comes with him. Blessing comes with him. So the thought of Jesus is going to show up and he's going to beat severely some Christians seems really odd. Um, really odd. Especially when the whole point is these are people who didn't obey the master's will. They didn't do what they're supposed to do. The, the real selling point for me, though, was back in Jesus' first sermon, the Sermon on the Plain in chapter 6. Go back to chapter 6. And in fact, this is the message that's in our in our new visitor packet. I have a little CD message and we have a welcome pack. And this is a CD is um, the, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Plain where Jesus really emphasized that the, what you do and what you believe, what you do and what you are, what you do and what you treasure really um, is, is proves those things. And so in verse 43 of chapter 6, no good tree, and literally the Greek is does, no good tree does bad fruit, nor does any bad tree do good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. What you do reveals what type of tree you are. And these servants, are they faithful servants? Well, what they do reveals they are not. Um, then you go down to verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. What you do reveals what you treasure, what you love. And then, this is the real selling point for me, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And the implication of that rhetorical question is, I'm not your Lord if you don't obey me. I mean, I mean especially when you put in the context of slavery. Master, master, I am your slave. You willing to obey me? No, you're not my slave. Whatever else you think. And then ultimately, Jesus, again, with this is getting tying in the doing, and, and don't get this backwards. He's not saying by doing, you become a slave. By doing, you become an orange or fig tree. What he's saying is the, the actions prove the nature. The actions prove the treasure. The actions confirm the profession of faith, calling Jesus Lord. And then the actions confirm or prove the ultimate destiny, eschatologically, the final destiny. And that's where he goes to next. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. The one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built the house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of the house is great. Now, minimally, that has to be... Just, that has to be the case of the servant who knew his master's will and didn't do it, right? He has to be in the same boat as the one who heard Jesus' words and doesn't do them. And here we have a picture of someone being destroyed in judgment. The flood arising, and they are destroyed. So that was the way the dominoes fell for me. Once I realized that the servant who knew his master's will and didn't do it is the same guy who heard Jesus' commands and doesn't do it, now I know his fate, and now I know what a beating is. A beating is hell. A beating is judgment. Okay, now we're dealing with a guy who doesn't know his master's will, and he is he's being judged in a lesser extent. Turn to, turn to Romans 2. Let me show you what I think where Paul talks about this. Um, in Romans chapter 2. Paul 
Paul is talking about God's judgment of works. Um, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, who will give eternal life. Now, if anyone did that, they would get eternal life. Now, we're going to find out by the time we get to the middle of Romans 3, there's no such people. But if there were, they'd get rewarded. Uh, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, and the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So, so what Paul has just laid out is, you know what? God's judgment is going to be fair. He's not going to show partiality, and he's going to reward you according to what you did. Now, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who've sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So somebody who never heard the Bible, who never heard the gospel, will God judge them according to, say, the Ten Commandments? No. They'll perish apart from the law. Will God judge them according to what Jesus said? No. That's what Paul said. They, they will be judged apart from the law. Verse 13, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. You get that? Gentiles who don't have the law, God won't judge them by the law, but by their own standard. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them on the day that when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So in other words, when you ask the question, well, what about the person who never heard the gospel who lives in Africa or Papua New Guinea or whatever? God is not going to judge them for not believing in Jesus if they've never heard about Jesus. God is not going to judge them for breaking the Ten Commandments if they've never heard the Ten Commandments. God will judge them for every time their conscience said, don't do that, and they did it. God will judge them by the standard with which they judged other people. And under that standard, all men will be condemned regardless. But the judgment will be lesser. The standard is lesser. You're not, you're not being judged for what you didn't know. The whole point is your conscience knows, and you do things against your conscience. Did you know you shouldn't do that? Yes, I knew I shouldn't do that. Okay, then. You're judged. Does that, does that make sense? So I, that's what I think he's talking about. Ignorance is no excuse. But for those who know, it's going to be worse. That's why James says, brothers, not let not many of you become teachers. For those who teach will suffer a stricter judgment. Um, so there are degrees of judgment. And Paul makes it clear here. People who've never heard the Bible, who've never heard of Jesus, they will not be judged for rejecting Jesus. They will not be judged for breaking the Ten Commandments. They didn't know the Ten Commandments. They will be judged according to the standard. There'll be a law unto themselves of their own conscience. But even by that standard, there is nobody who always keeps their conscience. There is nobody who always does what their conscience tells them to do. And so all will be condemned. Does that, does that make sense at all? That's at least what I think is going on in Luke. And that's why I think that's going on in Luke. Um, okay, then Scott, you are next. We, ha we have uh, three different parables here. One where the master is left to go to a wedding. And... His servants are waiting for him to come back. And then the second one, the master would not have left had uh, he known his place is going to be broken into. 
then the third one is the who's the faithful and wise manager and uh, whom his master will set over his household. Mm. So it appears that the master in the second parable is no longer the same as the first and third. Right. Agreed. In fact, even the word is different. So he talks about, in verse 39, you know that if the master of the house, now master of the house may not necessarily have to mean the master. This could be the top servant. It doesn't have to be. In fact, I tend to think it is because the one, the one unifier in all examples is you're dealing with house slaves. You're dealing with home servants and their responsibilities. So I tend to think the master of the house is simply the top servant, the one who's got the responsibility, not the owner. But the one who, because the owner wouldn't be staying up awake at night guarding his house, his servants would, right? Um, so I tend to think to make the one thing that unifies all the parables is you want to be faithful servants in the house, not unfaithful servants in the house. So continue. Okay, well, it would have been a whole lot less confusing had it been translated as the uh, manager of the household then. Yeah, yeah, let me, let me check and see what that is, actually. Um, is it like a despotos? I don't think it's, I think it's like a despotos. House, despot, house ruler. I could be wrong. If it's Corios, then actually that destroys, defeats my thought. So like, give me one second, and I will tell you. I could have told you earlier this week, but my brain scrambled right now. Um, Luke 12, verse 39. And, um, okay, hold on. 39. Yeah, Oikodespotos. That is not Corios. It's the house ruler. House manager. It's actually a term used, we looked at this last week, right? Managing their own households. Oikodespotying their households. Um, so yeah, this, this I think is probably another manager or servant. The top servant. Yeah. Okay? That's it? Okay, good. Yes. But one, I'll bring up the thing you brought up outside, though. What is interesting is Jesus is willing to liken his return both to a master returning and a thief. And I think that's because, for some, Jesus' return will be a day of terror and loss and destruction. And you can view it in negative categories and with negative um, metaphors. And for others, it is a time of great joy. And Jesus is comfortable both likening his return to a thief and a master returning from a wedding feast. Um, And so, yeah. Okay. JP in the back. If we have time today, I want to deal with today today, and you and I can talk afterwards if not. Um, you get, that was a hard question. It would take some time. And right now, people are asking questions, and I got something else. Working. What? The hour's not up yet, JP. The hour's not up yet. Okay. Um, okay. Sorry, Elsa's checking my Greek. Good for her. Oh, no, it's a house ruler. Oikos means house, and I think you can figure out what despot means. Um, despotos. Oike despotos. Okay. Okay. Um, anything else? <laughs> intent on getting... Oh, okay. Bennett's. 
Why do you say I need to be awake all the time? Ah, it's a it's a metaphor, Bennett. It doesn't mean that we don't sleep. The Lord has ordered and ordained sleep. It is good. It's God's gift. Uh, according to Psalm 128, He gives rest and sleep to His beloved. Rather, what Jesus is saying is, in a spiritual sense, we are to be alert. Yes, but also, he also said to Peter, he needs to be awake when he goes and prays to God. Yes. When he goes. There are, there are specific people and times where God tells them, be awake right now, don't sleep physically. But um, yet, yeah. Peter keeps on falling asleep. Indeed. Well, and I think there is some similarity. There is some overlap. Spiritual discipline, um, especially when spiritually significant things are taking place. Um, you know, some people, uh, you know, can stay awake through TV and TV. Why does Jesus get so mad that he falls asleep every time he tells them not to? Because he's Lord, and to take his commands lightly is to take him lightly. And he is Lord. He's not just a good guy and a tough guy and a big guy. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. To treat him and his commands lightly is to dishonor, disrespect him. Um, and, and so part of what we see here is here's the one who has the authority to, to, to dismember unfaithful servants. I mean, that, that's a level of authority that is stark. And Jesus is claiming that, I mean, Part of what's happening is an escalation of Jesus' claim of who he is. I am so important and so great that those who, well, here is someone who actually rebels. Those people who would rebel against my will, I annihilate. And those who disobey and don't do what I tell them to do, I beat. I mean, that is, that is a claim of authority and power and right that is up in Luke's gospel so far. We haven't seen that angle of it. So... It's because he's God, and and God wants us to tremble at his word and to take him seriously, which I think is the heart of what's spoken of as the fear of the Lord. Um, so, yeah, if we take Jesus from what he says lightly and say, well, hey, who knows, maybe do a measure of that. Yeah, we're, we're, not, we're not taking him seriously enough. That, that gets to what you're getting at, or is that more? Um, how do I get his blessing? The blessing comes from being alert and faithful. The blessing comes for not forgetting. And here's the challenge for me, right? The challenge for me, I remember, in fact, when Abner, when Serena was pregnant with Abner, we used to go on prayer walks. I wish, we have, we have too many kids now to go on prayer walks in the morning, but I, I wish we could. And what we would do, we'd go down, walk down the bike path, is I need to remind myself every single day when I get up, remind myself, because I forget that I'm not my own, I'm somebody else's property, I'm somebody else's slave. And therefore, all the decisions I make today, I make in view of that. I'm a steward, and I'm not my own. And my tendency every day is to live simply in view of what pleases me. And frequently those aren't wicked and terrible things. Frequently it's not, I want to be mean to people. But I'm simply conducting my day like I'm the master. These things exist for me and my purposes and to promote my agenda and my goals. And I forget that I'm a slave. And I'm in that sense, I'm being sleeping 
and inattentive, and I'm not watching for the master's return when I do that. In the scripture you read, mm -hmm. you also said that Psalms says, eat, drink, relax. Why does he say that? Because, the, oh. The eat, drink, and relax line, that's from the uh, rich man who builds the barn. That's in Luke 12, 19. Um, he says to his soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He has forgotten about judgment. And that's, again, what we need to remember. You've, you've got to have a view that has Christ's return and judgment in view. And so when we taught on this, when I taught on this a couple of weeks ago, I said, this is the materialist gospel. If there is no afterlife, if there is no judgment, if all we are is matter in motion, if, if we're just a big cosmic accident, then the best you can do is simply eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow you die. But the very reason God calls this man a fool, this is a man who did not gain his wealth through fraud. He didn't gain his wealth through, through oppressing anyone. He just had a really good year. And he's a fool because God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. The things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The reason this man's a fool is because he doesn't act as though there's a resurrection coming. He has not taken that into account. Oh, so he doesn't know exactly when resurrection's going to come. Well, and he doesn't even care necessarily. He, all he's looking to is this life. All he's living for is the things here and now. And as far as the things here and now go, he's got all, all he can have. The problem is, no one, no one of us has a promise. Are you trying to say you should live like you're, it's going to be your last day? You, exactly, Bennett. You got it. That's it. That is, live like you'd, live like you'd like to be found when Jesus returns. Or to put it another way, would I be comfortable doing what I'm doing, watching what I'm watching, if Jesus found me at his return like this? Would I click on that link if Jesus were to return in five seconds? Would I want to be found doing that? Live like that, precisely. Live like that. Well, I'm it. so glad I'm going to Paris in August 17th. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Okay. Thank you, Bennett. Thank you. Other questions? Anyone else? Zach. Zach attack. And I will start out by saying I wasn't here right at the beginning, so if I am repeating anything, just tell me to listen to it later. Okay. Um, listen but, to it later. Yeah. <laughs> um, kind of going off of what Bennett was asking, um, so, like, living like today's your last day, sometimes that's hard for me to kind of know exactly what to do because, you know, um, I this could be my last day or I could live for another, like, 60 years. Mm. And so it's like, how do I, should I even worry about 60 years from now as far as, like, you know, retirement and saving mm. money or even things like, mm. you know maintaining my car if my car is not going to last for another year because jesus is going to come back then why worry about some of those things that they say you should do to maintain it so it'll last another five years right and so sometimes it's like hard to know what to spend your time on because you wouldn't be buying any ripe banana any green bananas all right yeah 
So I think that's the significance of the third parable, because the first two might lend themselves to that. I mean, what are the servants, and this is where parables become, you don't want to press them too far. What is the faithful servant doing in the first parable? He's sitting by the window, watching out the road for his master to come. He's not doing other things, because if he's cleaning the kitchen, he might not see his master approach. The only way he can be ready to open the door to his master, if he's sitting right there, he's looking intently, he's not in action. It's a picture of readiness and alertness, and that's as far as the first parable can go. Second parable is likewise the reverse of that. Someone who's not ready, and so this thief breaks in, and so you think, but how ready would you be if you knew when the thief was there? And you, know, you picture the guy, you know, and, and let's assume it's a scenario where a thief, you could overpower him if you were ready. You got the guys with their either taser, their guns, or whatever they got, they got the police in hiding. They'd be sitting there ready and alert, but they're not doing anything. You want to be silent when you're waiting for a thief. So it's still a picture of inactivity. So the first two parables, that's why in the, in the outline, what I put for the commands next was, be awake. That's the word repeated twice in the first one, alert and awake. The second is vigilance, be watching, right? But it's the third one that tells us what we're to be doing, lest we do what the Thessalonians did, quit our jobs, that Jesus is coming back. Sell everything you have and just sort of, you know, kumbaya and have a big party until Jesus comes back. And we've seen people convinced that Jesus is coming back this year and actually do exactly that. They, they quit their jobs, they sell their possessions, they go move and we're waiting for the rapture or the meteor or whatever. And, um, and so the last one, look at the, look at this words here. Verse 42. The Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his house? to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. He's not sitting by the door waiting. He is faithfully carrying out his instructions. So what God is calling us to, ultimately, and, and this is why this third one is critical, we're to be, our attitude is alert and expectant. But what we're doing is we're faithfully carrying out our responsibilities. So God has called upon you as a husband and the father to give of your time and of your energy to your wife, your daughter, in the due time, give it to them. God has called you as a member of this church to give your time and your energy to this body, give it to us. God has called you as an employee to give to your master on earth your labor and your effort. Give that to him. Proportionately, appropriately be giving and serving and doing the things God has called you to do. Be found doing those things when Jesus returns. So it's not that you're changing your conduct. What he's saying is you want when Jesus comes back, you are doing the things he told us to be doing. That, that's the point. And so you, we need the third parable to make it clear this isn't just sort of sitting here waiting and watching and <clears throat> any second now. No, we want to be found being faithful, doing the things he's telling us to do and not hoarding them up. That's the contrast, is the wicked servant who, even though he's given, he takes these extra goods and extra monies, and instead of distributing them, he gets drunk, gets gluttonous, and abuses the slaves. And so I think the picture would be, are you being faithful as a steward of your time, energy, and money, the places where Scripture is calling you to give them, or are you living as though your time, your energy, and your money simply existed for your pleasure and your enjoyment, and who cares what anyone else that's the contrast. Does that, that make more sense? I hope. Yeah. I hope? yeah okay. It does. Anything more? Or is that good? Oh, yeah. I had another question. Oh, um, bring it. Of, um, like with the first parable about wanting to, well, I guess it's not 
exactly similar, but like just wanting the blessing, you know, wanting to be a faithful servant and be doing um, what God um, wants me to be doing. Sometimes um, I get caught up in like knowing like what's the best thing to do or um, like should I be doing this thing or is this better or you know like I relaxed and just kind of you know did something fun for downtime one day this week so maybe the rest of the days I should be like doing church activities or you know going out and helping people and so it's like sometimes it feels like a little bit guilty to do things that are um, more self-indulgent and um, or even like between two good things of like huh well I could go and spend time with people at church and you know fellowship with them but I have these family members that are not believers maybe I should spend more time with them rather than people at church because they're unbelievers and so sometimes I get caught up in comparing all these different things and knowing what God will be most you know proud of me and at the mm. end of the day kind of thing no that, that's a that's I think a, something all of us can struggle with and I used this analogy from C.S. Lewis a couple weeks ago, but I think ultimately we're supposed to present before the Master all of our time, including our leisure and everything, and saying, Lord, how much leisure time do you want me to take? Lord, how much? give me the wisdom to know. Because rest, right? I mean, you've got to have a theology of leisure. Most people feel guilty about leisure because they think there's no purpose for it. Leisure comes under rest, and rest is good. And so it's fitting and appropriate to have leisure time, rest time, time for refreshment, time for enjoyment. Sure. Um, but we need to prayerfully offer that up to God as well. Otherwise, we will start feeling guilty. Like, Lord, I'll serve you Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night, but Thursday night is my time. No, that's idolatry. The rest I take on Thursday night is, in, is according to the wisdom God gives me. But as Lewis said, we're afraid that if we give God everything, there won't be enough left over for us to live on. You know, um, like the person who's hoping after they pay all their taxes and bills, there's enough left for them to live on. No, we, we need to pray through that and ask for wisdom. I don't know what the exact answer is, but if you don't do that, you will feel guilty because your leisure will have been the area you held back from God. I think I've given God enough this week, now I'm going to do some of the things I want to do. You've just created a, two kingdoms, those things which are for God and his rule and those things which are for you. You've just created a sacred secular dichotomy. You watching a movie with your wife is holy if you do it in faith and is offered up to God. We're doing this because it's, it's for our joy, for our refreshment, for our encouragement, um, so that we can rest. That's worship, right? Um, if you do it sort of guilty, like, I think I've done enough for the Lord this week, I think we can watch a movie, you're coming at it all wrong. So that's that'd be the challenge. I mean, go to Psalm 90. Moses, go, go to Psalm 90 real fast. Let's turn to Psalm 90. Um, it's the only psalm in the Psalter that Moses wrote. Moses wrote more songs than this, but they were recorded in other books, Deuteronomy most notably in Exodus. Um, but the only psalm that made it to the Psalter, written by Moses, is Psalm 90. And what first begins is a contrast between God's infinitude and our finitude. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, um, you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to the dust. We're dust, you're everlasting, everlasting. There's your first big contrast. Um, verse 4, for a thousand years is in your sight. Our but as yesterday in the past, or as a watch in the night. 
You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass, grass that is renewed in the morning, and in the morning it flourishes and it is renewed. The evening it fades away and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. So the first point is you are infinite and we are finite. You are eternal. We are dust. A thousand years is nothing in your sight. That's the first big contrast. You are the eternal and infinite God and we are dust and grass that withers from. The second, you're holy and we're sinful is the second contrast. We're brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The year of our the years of our life are 70, or by reason of strength, 80. You may have heard that like the average lifespan back then was in the 30s. So wrong. It's infant mortality that brings down the lifespan. Our modern medicine has done a fantastic job of eliminating much of infant mortality. For people that made it out of early childhood, they lived to be 70 or 80 years, just like today. They got in their 70s or their 80s. Modern medicine has done very little to extend our average lifespan. What modern medicine is fantastic at is stopping the children who die at birth or shortly thereafter. Um, so in Moses' day, average lifespan... 70s, 80s. I think the average um, lifespan of a white female is like 88 or 84. So, I mean, we, it, it's pretty darn close. It's in the ballpark. Anyway, sorry, that's, that's, that's for free. That's just an aside. Um, well, no, I'll hear, like, if you were 30 in the Middle Ages, you were an old man. No. It's just so many people died before they got out of their, you know, childhood. Um, sorry. Anyway. Um, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Okay. So what, what the point is this. How often do we actually live keeping in mind our finitude and our sinfulness in light of this eternal God? Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? We, we don't live that way. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Number is not a good translation. Keep us to divide up our days. Make divisions in our days. Because of how short life is, because of our sinfulness and our frailty, and because life is difficult, we need wisdom to know how to divide up our days to make divisions. I need to know where to draw the line for family time, work time, leisure time, um, church time, extended family time. I need wisdom for all of that, and I'm dust, and I'm sinful, and it's hard. I need That's how you know. And so you prayerfully figure out, Lord, give me the wisdom to know what an appropriate amount of TV with my wife is. Lord, give me the wisdom to know how much involvement I should have in my church. Lord, give me wisdom to know how much time I can give to my in-laws. Lord, give me wisdom to know how much time I should give to my boss at work. You know, not everyone, not everyone, some people volunteer for overtime, and some people do that because they need to, and some people do that then they don't need to. All of this takes wisdom, and there's not like a law or a simple answer, but that's, that's how you do it. I mean, I'll just finish the psalm. So, keep us to numbers our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad as many days as you have afflicted us. As for the many years that we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish 
the work of our hands. Only in that context is the stuff you do, the work you do, that have any usefulness, any permanence, any value, is only when you offer it up to God, come, ask for that wisdom, are satisfied with Him, and then go and act on the wisdom that God's given you to work and do the things you're supposed to do. That's the picture of fidelity on our part with our lives to God. Um, and anything else, you're going to be less feeling guilty. Did I watch too much TV this week? Maybe I should have been out witnessing. You know, and you'll chase your tail like that all day and all night. Or you can say, no, I prayed about it. My wife and I talked about it. This is the wisdom God gave us. If we're out of line, he'll sure we'll f- he'll fix our wagon, hit play. You know? Um, and act in faith. No, good question. I mean, I know it's a long answer, but no, is that? Yeah, good? thanks. That helps. Oh, okay. Anyone else? We are just about out of time. Sorry, JP. I'll have to talk to you after this. Um, Okay, you guys are dismissed. God bless.